You're listening to the RUV English podcast. To hear more and for all the news from Iceland in English, just head to ruv.is slash English. Hello, this is the Roof English Podcast. I'm Darren Adam. Thank you very much for your company. Every week, the Foreign News Desk here at Roof produces a radio programme and a podcast. It's about foreign affairs and world events, and the programme is called Heimskvither. It's broadcast on Raus Et on Saturday afternoons. Now, many of the interviews that are recorded happen in English, and here on the Roof English Podcast, you'll have the chance to hear some of those interviews in full in English. Last weekend, Björn Malmqvist, one of the reporters on the show here at Ruv, and my Week in Iceland guest this week, looked at politics in Turkey, focusing on the upcoming parliamentary and presidential elections in May, with an interview with Asli Aydin-Tazbas, who is a well-known analyst at the Brookings Institute in Washington. She's also a former television journalist with CNN Turkey, and she writes opinion columns for the Washington Post. Asli told Björn about what's happening in Turkey, about President Erdogan and his party, the AKP, and they're standing in the polls now, three and a half months before an election. Well, there's been a steady decline in AKP votes, although over the last month, uh, Erdogan and his party started recuperating a little bit because uh, they've started a massive and massive campaign of public handouts. But uh, the trend has been downward since 2018, uh, the elections in 2018. Number one reason is economy. Uh, The, uh, you know, President Erdogan very strongly believes that interest rates are bad and evil and uh, that they are the cause of inflation as opposed to the other way around, which is what conventionally most economists believe. So he's kept the pressure on interest rates when the whole world in a post-pandemic atmosphere, the entire central banks around the world were raising interest rates. He's kept suppressed them. And I think there is a sense on the economy that the economic management is a little bit too personal, too erratic. Add to that the fact that Erdogan has been in power for 20 years, young people no longer connect to him, and that he's grown increasingly nationalist and authoritarian, Uh, pushing away uh, some segments of society, uh, even among the conservatives who want uh, a a more democratic Turkey, but also pushing away the Kurds, Kurdish vote, which is at least a fifth of the voter of the electorate and the pro-Kurdish party does tend to do around 13%. So a combination of these factors and the opposition started uniting uh, much in the same way opposition parties have united against Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel or against Orban in uh, in Hungary in the first ins- instance successfully, in the second instance not so successfully. But uh, all of these have led to a situation in which Erdogan started losing ground. But he's started doing better over the last month Uh, has been uh, able to get a good deal of financial funding, backing from Gulf Arab states, as well as Russia, which then allow uh, the president to uh, start unleashing a campaign of public housing, uh, 
uh, handout aid packages like nothing like we've seen before. So uh, this is going to be, uh, he's going to definitely recuperate a little bit. So the elections might be more neck and neck than people assumed a year ago. A year ago, uh, the thought was uh, this was Erdogan's last stand, and now it's a little bit uh, unclear. You spoke of the opposition. They have worked closely together in recent years, and it looks like this year is no different. But they still haven't unified around a presidential candidate to stand against Erdogan. They have unified against uh, around a platform. They, uh, they're pledging to take the country back to a parliamentary system away from Erdogan's one-man regime and reinstitute democratic rights and freedoms. But they haven't united around a candidate. The possible candidates were the mayors of Istanbul or Ankara, quite popular. But the leader of the main opposition party also seems very interested in the job. Different parties, there's six parties in the opposition coalition. And then separately, uh, you have the pro-Kurdish party uh, supporting the coalition, but outside of it. Uh, they, uh, there is still negotiations going on. And I think these next two weeks will be decisive. Finally, by uh, February 10th, we're going to know who the opposition candidate to run against Erdogan is. But the process has taken long. And the uh, the fact that they haven't united around one person early on has led to some um you know, it has become an, a, a little bit of an anti-climax for the voters. Do you expect this to be a tough campaign until May 14th? I expect to, this to be a very tough campaign. Uh, particularly, I expect more of a suppression of Kurdish politician and uh, vote in many ways uh, pressures on the pro-Kurdish HTP. There is... Uh, a court case in the Supreme Court, in the uh, Constitutional Court, about the closure of HTP. And of course, you know, that is decisive in this election. The 13% vote they have, Kurdish, primarily Kurdish vote, is going to be the swing vote, decisive in determining who wins the election. And if there is a closure case, for the party, voters will still be able to go out and vote, but I think very difficult for party to organize, campaign, do grassroots activities. So um, that is another aspect of the upcoming few months that uh, will be in a card that President Erdogan holds. I think in addition to that, uh, probably, you know, we're going to see a very bitter and visceral social media campaign and domestic campaign, extremely divisive and polarizing, because for both sides, this is the last uh, hill to die on. This is the most important battle. So I think we're going to see a very bitter campaign. You talked about the economy being a big issue in the upcoming elections. Turkey hosts the largest refugee population in the world currently, and a large portion of them is from Syria. Um, the affairs of these people and the relationship with the Syrian regime, is this going to be a big issue in the upcoming elections? Refugees are a huge issue in the election. Turkey currently has 
roughly 4 million Syrians, not including Syrian children uh, who have been born in Turkey over the past decade uh, when the war was waging. But it also has an, one another million of refugees from other countries, including Afghans, Iraqis, uh, Bangladeshis, and so on. Um, and the truth is, refugee issue is unpopular among voters across the political spectrum. No one essentially stands up for refugees and refugee rights because it's such an unpopular thing. And, and pretty much all parties have some type of a platform arguing that they are going to prepare the conditions for a safe return of refugees to Syria. It's saying that you're going to send refugees back to Syria is a popular election pledge. And people say, opposition parties say they will do that after consultations with the Syrian regime and create a safe environment. And now the government is saying something similar, that they're going to normalize relations with the Syrian regime and send refugees back. This is not really... Uh, achievable. It's in violation of many norms and Syria is really uh, far from being safe and the regime has not shown any willingness to uh, actually welcome refugees or um, Syrians who've left the country. But nonetheless, it's a popular election pledge and I think we're going to see a competition about uh, who can first uh, who can best send Syrians back in an election sphere. I wanted to ask you about Turkey and NATO. Turkey has been a member since 52, has the second largest army of the member states and plays an important strategic role within the alliance. But Turkey is also currently involved in a dispute with two applicant states, Sweden and Finland, in regards to Kurds and others that Turkey wants extradited primarily from Sweden and has not yet ratified the applications of these two states. How do you see this so how do you see this issue evolve over the next few months in Turkey with the elections coming up and with pressure on Turkey from other NATO members to accept Sweden and Finland into the alliance? It's highly unlikely for President Erdogan to greenlight Sweden and Finland's entry into NATO ahead of the Turkish elections. This conversation will probably take place after the elections. In fact, uh, it's more likely that he will use the election campaigning period to build a platform against Sweden and criticize Sweden and take his criticism of Sweden into a public campaign. He does this uh, pretty much before every election, usually pick a foreign foe or domestic foes and really hype it up uh, in an electoral space, building a platform, showing videos, uh, taking on these issues on a daily basis. And he will uh, probably, Sweden will has now just uh, been chosen as the uh, key theme of elections. So President will accuse Sweden of being a terrorist nest, as he has called it, and probably show videos of demonstrations in Sweden, uh, pro-Kurdish sentiments in Sweden, so on and so forth. So there's no doubt that uh, this will continue until the elections. Turkey is now signaling that they are more willing to greenlight Finland at the NATO summit and not Sweden. 
But in the end, I think, uh, you know, the real negotiations will take place after Turkish elections, between Turkish elections and the NATO summit. And will it matter if Erdogan loses and the opposition takes power? Would they be more willing to accept Finland and Sweden into NATO? I think they would be, uh, but uh, they cannot come out and promise that or say that because uh, they would be accused of being Western stooges and um, also uh, they would be uh, really criticized for uh, taking uh, pro-terrorism, pro-PKK line. They're very susceptible to the government propaganda that they are working with terrorists and working alongside terrorists. So I think they'll be cautious about that. Mm -hmm. But in the end, Turkey has always stood for enlargement of NATO and uh, Turkish-Swedish relations relations have been relatively good until this episode. So I think fundamentally after elections, uh, we will see more uh, space for negotiations. Probably President Erdogan is interested in having United States come into the scene with uh, F-16s. This is also something opposition uh, could be interested in the sale of U.S. sale of F-16s as a quid, quid pro for Turkey. But all of these things will be discussed after the elections. What about Ukraine and Russia's invasion in Ukraine? Turkey seems to have carved out the space as a mediator in this conflict, facilitating the deal to move corn from Ukraine, overseeing prisoners' exchange between Russia and Ukraine. They've taken a softer stand than many others on Russia, while also supporting uh, Ukraine's war effort. How do you read this policy? Turkey is doing a balancing game between Russia and the West. And while they've stepped up their support, their their NATO engagement in some areas and have delivered weapon systems to Ukraine, including drones, they're also cautious not to offend Russia. They're also very cautious not to use a language, not to use the type of language that see, we see in other uh, Western countries. Uh, that criticizes Russia openly. They don't talk about atrocity, Russian atrocities. They don't talk about the invasion. They kind of describe this whole thing as a competition between uh, two great powers, the West and Russia, and that you know the balanced act, what Erdogan calls the balanced policy, is actually something he's quite proud of. So they don't see the Ukraine war as a moral question in the way most European countries do. Uh, So Erdogan has been playing this very skillfully. He's used uh, his lines with Kremlin, his line of communication with Kremlin for the in favor of the grain deal and also for um, the release of POWs. I think this balancing act will continue as long as the war is out there. Turkey will try to play a negotiating role if and when there is time for ceasefire negotiations at some point. We don't know when this could be. Uh, But Turkey is also not uh, going with Western sanctions in Russia and has actually expanded its trade with Russia. But these are some of the issues that will continue to be uh, on the table. And, you know, as such, Turkey carves out a different role for itself than other members of the transatlantic community. This will go on as long as the war goes on. 
Going back to the politics of Turkey, if you can take a step back and take a broader view of the politics and the public debate in Turkey, um, the two main blocks, do they differ very much in terms of sort of world outlook, in terms of being oriented towards the West or to the East, their policy towards the EU, for example? How do you see the broad strokes in this? The opposition is more oriented towards Western style of living in Western democracies, democratic norms, but it's hard to say they're more oriented towards the West. In other words, I think at this point, anti-Western sentiments have been so beefed up, so uh, sort of supported in Turkey by the ruling elite, that the public has also turned against the West. Anti-Westernism is very, is the norm across the board. And Turks really think of themselves uh, as a pole in itself, not part of the East nor West, not a not a, an ally of Russia nor of NATO, and sort of a country that is out there surrounded by enemies of all sorts, domestic, external, internal, who are who who, who are trying to manage the the age of great power competition as such the idea that turkey is non-aligned is probably has probably more traction than anything else and turks uh, to the extent that they support uh turkey's eu accession process even knowing that uh it'll get it'll not get anywhere it's almost dead to the extent that they support turkey's nato presence, they also see that as an instrument as opposed to an end itself. So uh, when you look at polls, United States is considered to be a top threat uh, by Turks. Uh, yet, you know, they are uh, the president having good relations with one leader or Putin or Biden is seen as Turkey being able to play hardball in the great power game. So I think that a lot has changed and Turkey's uh, moment of transatlanticism is long gone. It is a new Turkey and the, the new Turkey unless there's a fundamentally new offer and embrace from the from the European Union, which is unlikely, this new Turkey will be um, essentially non-aligned, pursuing its own uh, strategic autonomy. Asli Aidan Tazbas, analyst at the Brookings Institute in Washington, talking to my colleague Björn Malmquist from the Raus et World Affairs programme Heimskvither which is broadcast on Saturday afternoons. I'm Darren Adam. Get in touch with Ruv English anytime. Just email english at ruv.is. You're listening to the Ruv English podcast. To hear more and for all the news from Iceland in English, just head to ruv.is English.